0: BAFTA creates platforms for open debate, and so the views expressed in this programme are only those of the contributors.
1: Hello, and welcome to the BAFTA podcast. In this programme, we'll present a day of inspiring discussion and talks. Giving at BAFTA HQ to emerging talent, like me. Like me. And me.
2: And me! (laughs) It's about how to get into the industry. And how to make great television.
3: It's called Generation Next.
2: It's going to be great, so stay with us.
4: So we're about to see Tim Hinks, the president of Endemol, and he's going to be interviewed by Boyd Hilton from Heat magazine. And we all
0: get to ask him questions at the end, so it'll be great to gain that insight with somebody that's so influential.
5: Thanks Thanks very much. Um, Yes, this is the most exciting day of our lives, um, pretty much, because we get to listen to Tim Hinks, probably the nicest, funniest uh, TV bigwig I've ever met. Uh, No pressure, Tim. No, that's... Uh, uh, you've got to live up to that, billing. I'm um, confident I can. Good. How did you start? Did you always want to be in TV? Was, it, was that your dream as a young boy growing up, watching Magic Roundabout or whatever? Um, I can't say that the...
6: I really enjoyed my school, but I can't say that the careers officer had a particularly broad range of options <laughs> right. uh, laid out. So I don't think sort of television was something that was even discussed. So I suspect the honest answer is... I didn't really have a concept you know, growing yeah, up that you could yeah. sort of work in it. I certainly didn't know anyone that worked in it. So How did you stumble it, into...? Well, I think things? I th- sort of thought maybe television... I think I was aware at university that you could work for the BBC. Okay. Um, so I applied to the BBC, got a very nice BBC rejection letter. Right. Um, but, but then thought, okay, maybe that's it. And then I think I worked out at some point, when I was about 21, when I was temping, uh, in London that you could maybe work on television programs, and I wrote letters. You, you, a letter is a thing, a piece of paper. <laughs> you write, yeah. yeah. And um, I wrote, you could find producers' names in the Radio Times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which is a magazine. Again, you'll not be <laughs> really, but it was printed onto paper and... Um, Magazines are amazing. They're still you, going strong. Yeah, Don't worry about that. you say that, but I think their time is up. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> the, um, and I wrote to producers and... Uh, again, got lots and lots of no's. Mm. Well, sorry, that, the thing you learn about television first of all is not about no's, it's literally just no reply. Right? Right. This is the great TV thing. Um, it's No one really wants to give a yes. Giving a no is a bit annoying <laughs> as well, so best just ignore it, right. whether it's a pitch you've made or whatever. So, so, you, so I got m- obviously mostly ignored, and then I had two interviews. Uh, one was with... Uh, Panorama, which because I was interested in, still am interested in politics and how the world works. I suppose Um, that went, yeah, I'd say pretty badly um, (laughs) as an interview. And then I got an interview with a guy called Peter Basiljet, who ran a very small independent production company that made a show, a food program for the BBC, and he gave me a job. Ah, I've heard of
5: him. that? I've heard of him.
6: Yeah, yeah. And um, so he, so he gave me a job. So uh, it's very hard to say there was a moment at which I thought this is. The place I'd like to be. I think I had a concept that it would be fun to work somewhere vaguely in a public sphere, if you're not, you know, rather than, you know, be an accountant or whatever, which I'm sure um, some of my best friends are accountants, (laughs) but, um, but you know, somewhere where you could probably talk a lot, somewhere where I got the sense you didn't have to work that hard.
5: (laughs) Uh, I always thought that, obviously. I'm not really um, objective about it, because Big Brother was a huge part of the, the success of Heat magazine as well, but I did always think that the creative element of that of the show at its height, and even and, and still now, in terms of the coming up with the tasks and all of that was m- much underappreciated in a way. <laughs> Do you feel that way? Is that, that, that there was a hell of a lot of hard work and huge teams coming up with really funny, interesting ideas for this show, Big Brother.
6: Yeah, I don't know whether I'd say we were underappreciated, because I think, yeah. We have a lovely time. Sure. And it's a lot of fun for those guys working on it. So yeah, I don't know about underappreciated, but I think, yes, you're right. I think that the reason Big Brother has I mean, for me, the reason Big Brother, for example, has kept going on a long, long time is that it's sort of it's like a sort of a, it's like a theme park. I mean mm. you've basically got you know what roughly what you're gonna expect, but within it you can change, you can make it scary, hard, you can make it easier, funnier, you know, and you can intervene. It's highly, highly produced, as you say, everyday tasks and so on. So I think that it can change and feel very different series to series. And of course the people in it, the the housemates, make it change. So I think Big Brother is going to be, a fact. you know, I think Big Brother's going to be around as long as I'm around, but it just depends what, what form. And I think it constantly... Uh, can reinvent itself. And I also think there's a bit about big brands being sort of, you know, the X-Factors, the the, the, the Big Brothers Strictly, you know, they're just sort of around and we like mm. that and they're sort of, uh, they deliver. But as I say, in what form, whether one day it's purely on the net. I mean, who knows? There's yeah. all sorts of yeah. possibilities. But I think um,
5: it's a highly produced show. Mm. Yeah. You've still got a lot of um, incredibly successful formats that f- I'm thinking of a million pound drop. Yeah. And Deal or No Deal. Yeah, I mean, two extraordinarily yeah. successful. Yeah. I think absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I mean, Deal or No Deal is incredible because it's just it's just yeah. people opening boxes and guessing, isn't it? And that's you, not how I pitched it. No, either. yeah, that's, that's a pretty but bad it, pitch. Yeah, yeah, but it's a pr- absolutely works mm. brilliantly. What can you could, can you sum up what works <laughs> about that, those two formats? What, what yeah. makes them? I think so. I can have a go. Yeah,
6: and I think what I would say is what we do. Um, what Endemol does, I mean, we're, basically we're an ideas company, yeah. is the way we look at it. And we come up with ideas and then we, then we turn them into, usually, into TV formats. Um, who knows whether we'll only do that in yeah. the future. You know. But, um, and what these shows need, to me, is very much like, a, it's like sport or like, any, you know, theatre. It it, it's about jeopardy and it's about drama, it's about emotion. So everything we do, we try and make sort of emotional, you know, whether it's our drama or our non-scripted and we want people to react in an emotional way. So, Deal or No Deal, A Million Pound Drop are both shows which, you, which have incredible jeopardy and drama in them, mm. incredible emotion, and, and they matter, you know, what's going on matters. And I do think formats, it's very useful to think of them as sports, because I think oh, yeah. the point about formats is, Deal or No Deal, A Million Pound Drop, as you say, ex- uh, good examples, are that basically, it is the same every week, and it's the same every day, So you have your game, Mm. but it's the players and what's at stake that changes, and the way the game plays that changes, but you need a set of rules. And so both Deal or No Deal and Million Pound Drop first and foremost have the most incredible, tight set of rules, which you don't necessarily notice. You don't watch a football game and think about the offside rule, but Mm. the fact that it's there helps create drama. So they have the right format, but uh, the, the right rules, if you like, but take both of them. I think Deal or No Deal took four years to sell, Wow. And I pitched it to every broadcaster at least once, including Channel 4. Right. Um, and it just, I think there was a bit of, yeah, but it's just boxes and yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think when you play the game, you realise it's very different from nearly every other game out there because there is tremendous jeopardy about every four minutes. Right. Because every time you do the thing where you find out, the, get, get a deal and you find out whether you've done the right thing, it's a, ma- it's, a, it's a moment of pure drama. And I think that's very unusual. And so the Jeopardy per second, JPS, right. which we've <laughs> yes. just invented, yeah. very important concept in <laughs> yeah. television. If yeah. um, so you learn anything today, it's the yeah, JPS. JPS yeah. is very, very high. Yeah, that good. Um, that's true. And so, so you've got yeah. that going on. And then in Million Pound Drop, most shows get rejected full stop, as you guys know. V- virtually nothing <laughs> makes it onto television. So, and most of them get rejected before they're even... you know. So Million Pound Drop got rejected by a broadcast of quite understandable reasons and the reason being it, no show works with the money going down which is sort of true so so, right. so okay. n- yeah. normally you uh, a quiz show millionaire yeah. you name it yes, it's yes. about money it's about Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. And that would feel the right thing to do for drama, wouldn't yeah. it? Which is to yeah. build up a story. So you're getting more and more money, more and more money. Yeah, so who yeah.
5: wants to be a millionaire is building Yeah, exactly. so you build up yeah. and yeah. then you
6: might lose it at right. the end, but right. at least, but yeah. yeah. Whereas a million pound drop goes, as you perhaps know, down, you yes. see. So you're thinking, well, that's not how you do it, right? So yeah. fair comment. But of course, the, the joy of any of working in what we work in is like, yeah, that's definitely true 99 times out of 10. But when it's not true. That's a special thing. Yeah. I mean a pandrop has this bizarre thing of it's the money going down, and I think it's just mad sort of. I mean, what physically watching the money disappear, those moments of jeopardy yeah. are incredibly important. So a bit like Deal, it's got relatively high JPS. Yeah. Um, yeah. Generally, Al- well, but, sorry, can I just be clear? We'd <laughs> yeah. ne- we never ever talk about JPS. It just literally. <laughs> no, it just <laughs>
4: My favourite bit was when he talked about how TV is now a lot more open to enter the industry. There's a lot more help around and how for when he was doing it, it was very difficult and it seemed as though there was no routes in, whereas today there's events such as these and they really emphasise the fact that there's so
0: many routes into it and in so many different roles.
7: I really liked the start of a talk when um, Tim Hings was saying about how to be like confident in your own ideas and confident in pitching your ideas. But then you said a lot of people that work in the TV industry kind of have like big egos, which is can be bad, but can be also quite a good thing to have to have the competence to pitch ideas, but also to let other people in.
8: you be happy with how you've lived your life
2: and um, we are currently watching a show <laughs> um so this is an ideas generation this workshop uh, with the creative, creative team at uh, objective against. productions and uh, we're going to be coming up with deserting ideas deserting and learning how to get ideas going within the television industry So coming up with formats
1: you, you forget how difficult it is to actually come up with an idea we forget because we just do, we just do it all the time and as well as the the idea that we're looking for today, and the idea we're trying to the the thing we're trying to get across is like this: a simple, clear proposition that can be explained in one sentence. Hopefully, you have still got to actually get that simple, clear proposition out your out your head, out your mouth, onto a piece of paper, and exposed to your peers and to the the people around you. so we
9: split people into groups and then talk, talk about the techniques? We're going to give you each a sort of forced technique rather than. I think if we sat half the room with a blank sheet of paper and gave half the room some of these techniques, we'd find yeah. that the ones with the blank piece of paper are going to find it a lot harder. But we're not going to do that just in case the experiment goes wrong. So we will give you all something that will hopefully spark some ideas off.
1: The four things we're going to do now are forced methods of going, right, oh Christ, this is a way of coming up with something. And they work. And and they really, they they really help you. So we're
2: trying to generate ideas by looking through um, yesterday's papers and looking at anything from programs that already exist and seeing if we could make them into other programs or taking something like a film title and running with that and trying to create an idea out of that as opposed to just having a blank page in front of us and trying to come up with something.
8: How long have we got till idea time? <laughs> Probably not long enough.
2: I think it's quite a good way. I mean, like we've been here about ten minutes and we've already c- come up with quite a few ideas. And through looking at like three different TV shows, we've come up with like a newer show. So I think it's quite a good way of working when you don't really have any ideas on top of your head.
9: How are we getting on in this group? <laughs> so
2: we're,
9: have you stopped? Have you stopped drawing out names? We've
2: got um, factual entertainment and magic. Uh, yeah it's quite interesting we've had um, a couple of ideas we've been banding around we're thinking about kind of the audience the primetime audience on Saturday we've been talking about we love the idea of magic through the ages Romans right up to that and we want to incorporate kind of that element of the facts into a game show we've got two average Joes they're given a week taught by a famous magician or a famous comic magician
8: <laughs>
9: you have done more work in about five minutes than we do in a month so that's a good start I think it's an interesting area that yeah I think magic through the ages I think is a fact end side of it and I think The idea of normal people being trained up to do magic is a really good one as well because it's obviously something that can go wrong and it's quite hard and that's why we like these talent shows, not just to see good singers but to see people singing badly and I think actually someone sat there shaking you'd probably be on their side and want them to do it but it'd be quite an exciting, you know, I can see that.
10: Uh, The ideas generation workshop was really helpful, it's given me loads of new tools and and activities for coming up with new ideas for shows, it was really interactive, and um, one great tip we got from it is using racehorse names for names of shows, which was great, so it was a really, really helpful workshop. We're watching documentary directing skills. The panel includes David Clues, Head of Docs 2-4 and Series Director, Educating Essex Channel 4, John Douglas, Producer-slash-Director, Our War, BBC Three, and Aisha Raphael, Head of Docs, BBC. So pushing at the form, that's one of the rigged did one aspects of it, and then I think Our War has taken it on to Another level where it's not even anything to do with us putting cameras there. They're sort of there already, aren't they?
3: So, Mm. for those people who haven't seen it, can you just describe what our our war is?
11: So, our war—it was commissioned um, to tell the sort of ten years, um, the story of the ten years war in Afghanistan from 2001. It was commissioned in 2010. It was supposed to have a kind of slightly historical kind of feel about it as well, sort of contemporary history commission. And the idea behind it, it came uh, a few years ago, there was a single film called Wounded that was made by the BBC. And there was a guy there who was fighting in Afghanistan had worn a head cam and was injured. So there was a little bit of footage that was used in that film. And then I think we became aware that some sort of footage that had been uh, filmed by soldiers had popped up on YouTube and, you know, soldiers themselves were cutting together sort of montage, sort of war sequences to heavy metal, thrash metal, (laughs) putting them up on YouTube. And it, it became clear that actually soldiers were taking cameras out on tour. A lot of them weren't really supposed to, but they were filming and they were gathering all this material. And I think that the commission came from the idea that actually if we could gather that material and um, have a look at it because, as Aisha says, it, it was never filmed for broadcast, and it was never filmed with an audience in mind other than soldiers, sort of friends and family. So we got permission from the Ministry of Defense to start collecting sort of all, this, all of this material from the soldiers. And then the challenge was trying to find a sort of narrative in it, and trying to find story and a cast of characters that could sort of lead you through the history of the war. And, um, and that's what we did. And I think, so we made one series that went down well, made a second series but you know constantly there were two two batches of footage really one was this found footage that we went back and was, we found footage from 2001 onwards but then there was another kind of category of footage where we also gave soldiers who were about to go on tour headcams and small cameras for them to film the duration of their tour. So that was quite a sort of different pool of material. And we had to treat that slightly differently. But between the two kind of categories of material, we managed to make make sort of six films. So how so do you actually find a story when it's a mixture of found footage and stuff? You know, so you're not actually doesn't pop out of your head because it's just it's sort of random stuff. It is it is random and a lot of it's kind of fragments and a lot of it's repetitive because what you find is that every soldier wants to film a you know, a grenade being fired and a plane going overhead and there's a lot of repetition. But actually when you start to watch a lot of the material, you start to see kind of characters and story emerging and you actually treat it like you would any other documentary. There's a lot of research that went into finding out what happened on people's tours, what type of people were on the tour, who in the platoon were, you know, who's the funny one, who's the nerdy one, who's the very wary one, you know, and and you you start to sort of build this cast, um, and through that footage, you learn a lot about them, and you know you know that there's there's been quite amazing things that's happened on their tour, some very sort of dark and difficult things. It's just watching, watching all of this material and stories begin to emerge and in in that sense it's no different to any other kind of documentary I don't think, where you're just constantly looking for story and things things do emerge. The the hard thing was making the, the sort of narrative coherent and having a beginning, middle and end, because say they're not filming like producers film, you know, like you'd go and direct something and you'd make sure you've got everything you need for your sequences. So we were looking, looking at the, the material, trying to work out how we'd build a story, but then we went to the soldiers involved and filmed interviews, which actually gave everything context, because without context, a lot of the footage just looks like sandy, beige-coloured material, <laughs> wobbly, out of focus, you know, <laughs> poor quality. But then as soon as you kind of start to speak to the people who are involved in filming it, and they tell you where they were, what was happening, what the story was at the time, it just sort of brings it to life, and you're, the, the, the gaps in the story were filled by the by the interviews. And I think they probably the interview is probably the most powerful thing in the series. I think. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you go about finding stories amongst all the also somewhat random footage? What's, what's your well, process I mean, actually, we
3: through? we with the school, we spent six months in the school before we did any filming. So, like you would when you make a single film about one person, you want to get to know. Who the potential characters are, you know, what the stories um, that I related to, who who I found interesting as characters. Um, so there was a lot of work that went into building up relationships. As a filmmaker, that's what it's always about for me. It's about the relationships that the you know the, the contributors have with one another and also that they have with me. Um, because that's the only way you can start working out. What is the story you want to tell? Who is the person that you... Um, you know, Whose shoulders are you sitting on? What perspective are you, um, are, are you trying to find or follow? With Educating Essex, originally it was called Classmates. We went in thinking, this is going to be a series about teenage life. Um, the teachers will be important, but ultimately it's about the kids. And it was through the process of being there, myself and the, and the, and the team being in the school, that you realise At the heart of the school were the relationships between the teachers and the kids. And that um, was the most exciting thing whenever we would sort of go away from there. You'd see these amazing moments where these teachers are battling or struggling with these hormonal, difficult (laughs) kids. And there was a shift. So that that was part of the process then. By the time we went in and we put the cameras into, into Passmore's, we knew that we had... Um, the head teacher and the deputy head, and other key teaching staff, um, and then uh, the sort of the ensemble of, of kids, really. And probably there were seven episodes. At least half of them were kids we'd identified beforehand. We thought we knew what their st- stories were going to be. There were some surprises, but but generally we were so well researched that um, um, that's what happened. Of course, we're also reactive because it's school, you don't know what's going to happen on any given day, so there were definitely things that then just took place that you then follow um, and then sort of try and tell those stories as well.
10: It's very interesting, you know, that interaction between, I think a lot of the, the most powerful documentaries um, that have worked are all about this, that sort of interface. So. Um, You go in, you think it's going to be about the kids, but actually it's about the relationship with the professionals, the teachers who are dealing with them on a daily basis. And there isn't actually a successful series that I can think of that isn't really about that... Interaction. So whether that's coppers, which is the police dealing with the sort of great unwashed public, whether it's a tube, uh, uh, tube workers dealing with us on a daily basis, whether it's 24 hours in A&E, you know, staff. One of the great things that Telly's done in the last few years is give a voice to some of those key people that are part of all mm. of our lives that we don't actually normally get to hear from yeah, so much. Yeah, they're heroes, aren't yeah, they? Absolutely. And I mean, Mr Drew in Educating Essex is one of the best people I've ever seen on telly. I mm. love him. Yeah. Uh, the first time I saw him, I thought, oh, my God, he is a hero. Everyone will mm. love him. And um, if he inspires me that much, and I've just only seen a little bit of him, of course he's going to inspire all these kids at this school, however difficult. And, you know, and, and 24 Hours in a and is exactly the same, all the amazing staff that have to deal with us. So I think that's quite worth thinking about when you're making and thinking about ideas. Is it's not just about that's the the perspective of the kid or the or us our side. It's also what we rub up against.
4: Yeah, I thought it was uh,
2: very interesting. It was interesting to um, hear about how they um, came up with the ideas and. Um... The different types of camera movements and how it's really important to really find the story and really connect with the people that you're filming um, and to try and get that story across honestly to everyone, so it's very good.
4: Um, we're just about to go into the understanding the deal, how to be business savvy and make money in television. The panel consists of Lisa, who's editor at Broadcast Magazine. You have Melanie, who's managing director at 2 Four. Sam Bain, who's a writer for Fresh Meat, Peep Show, very successful. We also have Matt Angel, who's head of legal and business affairs at Psycho. And Steve, who's managing director at Mass Media.
8: I mean, you know, contracts are there for the worst case scenario, I guess, when everything goes wrong and you pour over item 10, point A, and go, well, actually, you know, I, I've never got down to that point, thank God because I've never had to, it's, it's always been a sort of human conversation with other humans, not talking jargon. And obviously the key thing I think we'd all agree on is that everything in television is a negotiation, whether it's creative or business, right? And so even as a writer, you, it's constantly negotiation. You know, you're know, you dealing with people's opinions, notes, the channel, what the channel want, what the producer wants, what the director wants, what the actors want, and that your job is to deal with that, which is I think, something people I don't think understand quite enough especially writers is that you know it's not like the theatre or fiction where you kind of here's the text it, the text is, is a basis for negotiation and and yeah. it's, you know in terms of changing stuff you, you will always have to change things but what you, the ideal thing as is what happened to us is that they change for the better other people's ideas make them better mm-hmm. I think one should look at it in a positive way embrace feedback embrace notes try and work with obviously good people and and usually you'll benefit, and, and your script will get better. You know.
12: And and Matt, is it possible to to really hundred percent copyright an idea and also sue someone who you think I mean it, it has has ripped your format off? Yeah, I mean there isn't really actually awful. an example. <laughs> <laughs> <is there? laughs> you no.
13: Know, um, you'll hear people say that there's there's no such thing as a format right, and legally that that's absolutely correct. And you'll see that people who have tried to to sue in court for, for breach of format have been unsuccessful. However, within the TV industry, people recognise format rights and and trade them. That's why st- people pay Steve money for his mm. formats. So there's this schizophrenia within the industry where there's no legal protection, strictly speaking, but people do recognise them.
2: We're slightly more protected here than in America, aren't we? Where uh,
13: not really. Not really, because what what you have to do is is try and seek protection in in other ways. So you might trademark the title of a format and get trademark protection. You you might get people to sign a non disclosure agreement, uh, and then you could sue them for breach of confidence. There could be elements within a, a format that attract copyright. For instance, the the design of the the stage, mm. but there isn't one format right that protects the format
14: so, but there was one uh, legal issue that we were tripped up on that cost us a lot of money and that involved doing a deal with an American company um, and we mistakenly didn't take on an American law it was very early in our in our um, career and we didn't take on an American lawyer so it was done in American law and just a couple of terms that were in this contract including the difference between how they would describe a series uh, we, what we would describe as a series is in fact a season in the States, that, was, that, that causes hundreds of thousands of pounds to be lost. And so by just that extra money that you have to spend on an American lawyer for an American contract, absolutely crucial, very, very important, and, and cost have, us dear, um, I'm so bitter. <laughs> <laughs>
8: Can I just pick up on the point about um, format rights and, and ownership, <laughs> I think it's really important because I think a lot of people starting out are very worried their idea if they tell someone about it is going to be stolen would you Is that generally uh, I mean certainly writers I know are very worried that if they pitch an idea the the person they're going to do is say great right, thanks for the idea see you later we're going to make that show personally I think that's a bit of a myth I don't know what the panel would say about that
13: I don't think it's a myth but but I don't I don't think it's a case of a whole lot of evil TV executives pinching people's ideas I think what happens is people pitch ideas and then these ideas will sort of float around in an executive you you brains think, definitely. In, and then people talk to each other and, and, and then almost subconsciously uh, an, a new idea will be created which
14: actually is a copy of what was pitched at some point. Okay. I think there's a danger of pitching ideas too early, that often happens, and, and I think that you've got to keep your powder dry a bit to actually get to so, so something is in a shape that you're happy with it before you talk to people, because as you say, things get into the ether very quickly, and if it's just a little tiny part of an idea, then it's gone, because somebody, somebody else will say, oh, talking to a commissioner, oh I like that, somebody just talked to me about that, it wasn't really a show but they talked to me why didn't you include that? It, 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 that, those sorts of things happen all the time so I think you've got to be careful at what stage you pitch things but clearly you've got to pitch them otherwise mm-hmm. you know, nobody's going to know what they
4: are. I just found that really useful, like one guy was asking about a trailer and <coughs> do you need one, one thing Mel suggested was to use clips from YouTube and have it for like 90 seconds and use a soundtrack. So effectively tell your story, but not in a cost-effective way.
2: Uh, We're about to listen to Delivering the Director's Cut and we are hearing from Philippa Lowthorpe, director of Call the Midwife, and David Thrasher, who is the editor.
12: How did Call the Midwife come together? I mean, how did the memoir make it on screen? Did someone approach you or was it your idea, was it the writer's idea? It was Neil Street Productions. It was Pippa Harris who had the book and she approached Heidi Thomas and, and then they assembled their team and I was lucky enough to be asked by Pippa and Heidi to direct, to direct it.
4: You mentioned you can um, sort of edit in your head before you go on a shoot. Would you say, did you have any edit experience before you became a director or would you say it's beneficial to have that so that you can get like the best shots for your sequence?
12: I think it's really useful for, ed- for directors to know what shots they need and that d- is sort of just practice of being in the cutting room because I love being in the cutting room. Some directors not so keen on that but even from making documentaries I learnt how to edit and I loved being in the cutting room so I think it's obviously you don't do every shot but you know what you need to make a sequence. Uh, So what I took home from Call Me The Wife interview
2: was mostly about the emotion involved with editing Uh, you know it's not just about the writing of the story it's about sort of what you do afterwards, how it's cut, um, the music you use um, and how important that is in sort of conveying the emotions of the story as well.
9: The thing I took away from this lecture was the collaboration between the director and the editor. I think that was the most fascinating thing. I wasn't sure how separate they work. Is it an individual? Um, what I've heard before was the editor is it's really a lonely job, lonely lonely thing to do. But um, I think, I, think if, I feel confident now with, with that kind of like, even whichever direction I take, it'll, it'll be like taking both areas into account, you know? So I was going to do
7: a PhD.
4: We're currently in a lecture listening about how to be a top researcher with Ed Ryland, Greg Jenner and Louise Palmer.
7: <laughs>
9: oh okay all right
7: okay maybe I won't go to Boston uh, and so I thought what else can I do uh, where I get to sort of have fun with history and I get to engage the subject that I love and you know teaching is, was the thing I wanted to do but you know what else could I do and telly seemed to be a natural fit I love tv I love movies and I thought all right well I'll try some work experience and so I, like Ed, I sent off lots of letters to all the companies that I could find. Uh, I got a little book from The Guardian called The Media Bible. Uh, and I just sent off letters to like 20 companies. Uh, about eight came back. And I just chose the one that was making a history show, and that was Lion TV. And they were making a show called Days That Shook the World, which was a docudrama about uh, famous days in history, where they sort of um, forensically anatomized each hour of that day. So the moon landing, you know, what happened at 9 a.m., and so on. Uh, and I got to do three weeks as a sort of runner. Uh, and being a historian, I was sort of of use, and they kind of went, oh great, you can you can do facts and stuff. So I, they put me on the fact department, um, and then they kind of dressed me up as a 18th century sailor, and I was at the Boston Tea Party at five in the morning <laughs> on an 18th century ship in the pouring rain with a walkie-talkie sort of yeah. going, w- what's going on? Um, but the, the importance of the of that sort of uh, eye-opening experience really, the idea of doing a bit of work experience, of meeting some people and d- making sure that I love the idea of telly, because I hadn't you know, never crossed my mind before, there was no ambition that way but that three, four week window was really kind of, it just it was really thrilling, it was exciting, you're working with clever people, you're working to deadlines and you're getting to use your skills and it just um, immediately I thought yeah this is for me.
0: Given how you told us that you got your
12: role on Have I Got News For You, it sounds to me like you actually probably did have personally quite an interest in politics and quite an interest in finding the funny side of politics has it helped you that you actually are kind of interested in engagement could you fake it if you weren't if you didn't really give a toss about politics and you didn't have much of a sense of humor or does it really matter who you are and what you care about
14: um i think a sense of humor is uh, is quite important i think you can fake it without being that into politics i I'm not that into politics compared to a lot of people. You get a, a lot of people who are who are very serious political buffs, and uh, you know know every single member of Parliament and know what everyone does. And in any TV thing, especially entertainment, you're trying to find things that a large cross section of society will find interesting or find entertaining. So, in some ways, a bit of ignorance is actually quite helpful because everyone will find Vince Cable falling over funny. That goes
12: Uh, goes without saying, pretty much.
14: So I think uh, in that way it's sort of generalisation and and, uh, more... A sense of humour is probably more important than that kind of thing. But obviously you can't do anything without uh, having some awareness of of what's going on.
2: The big difference is between what I do and what these guys do, I, I think, is that people who I'm working with and filming with aren't paid so they're not it's not a job for them they're not experts that we've got in so it's all about my relationship with them and they've got to want to do the program that i'm making and it all the success of the program fully relies on on my relationship with them really and so i'd say my kind of biggest skill and what what you need is just being able to talk to anyone i mean i should be able to send be sent kind of off to a council estate in Glasgow one week, and then to the palace the next. You know, and that is what it's like. And it's making fe- people feel comfortable and being open and being honest. And I, it's it's a very specific thing. It's in a way, it's kind of very non TV. Are you uh, a
12: casting specialist? Are you finding contributors yeah. and persuading them to be in shows?
2: Um, a bit of a bit of both, really. Um, with factual. Nowadays as well, crews are very, very small. So um, when you're kind of saying what, what's the key skills, I'd definitely say for factual, it is your people skills and talking to people, but it's also probably being able to self-shoot, you know, all stuff like that, because I'll be there right from the beginning where I've tried to find someone's details and tried to locate them to making the first approach, to going to meet them, persuading them, talking to them about the story, right down to them possibly going to shoot. I'd say it's a bit of everything, really. Um, it was really interesting to hear the, you know, different backgrounds and stuff
0: um, of where they came from and what sort of things they ended up doing from getting those jobs.
2: I think probably um, when Ed Ryland was talking about having to change a whole show by one day and how manic that was just to just to move it one day and all of the things they, the hoops they had to jump through and all of the rescheduling they had to do there, um, really sort of, yeah, really shows you what sort of things you you have to contend with at short notice.
5: Okay, it's uh, just before three o'clock and I'm sitting in the Princess Anne Theatre waiting for the So This Is What You Do All Day segment to start. And I think it's going to be a
15: session with several opinions about what TV broadcasters do on their day-to-day lives.
4: To be a script editor, that's half of my role really and it means seeing a project from start to finish. So I will work with the writer in very early stages of storyline. We will plot through episodes. We'll work out what the problems are. We'll work out serial arc, that kind of thing. Sometimes a writer knows it inside out. So my job then is very much a supporter or an enabler. Then we get to pre-production. So I work on drafts. I make sure that firstly they're formatted and they're typo-corrected, that kind of thing. Another part of my job is clearances, so I have to make sure that any names that are referenced do not really exist, so nothing's contentious in the script. And then I see it through production. So while we're shooting, there'll be lots of amendments, and they happen for various reasons, either location reasons, or production, or you know, on-the-floor queries. And it's my responsibility to make sure that everyone's working off the same script, off the right script. Then, often, where we've finished, wrap, I have to look at synopses or billings, which then appear in Radio Times or in our press packs.
1: I think for being an editor, the key skills really is to know every single bit of software. Um, Like technically, it's best to know every single bit of software, whether it's Avid or or Final Cut or After Effects and things like that, things that will help you in your career in terms of being, "I I am better than everyone else because I know how to use all these different things. So that's kind of useful, but also I think in terms of editing you need to know how to tell a story, uh, which is the most important part. And you also, personality wise, I kind of find that it's best to be a little bit like the kind of serious joker almost, because when everything's going to hell and you've got two days and you've got a viewing and you don't know what's going to happen and everything's all over the place, at least if you're stressed and you get stressed easily, then Is kind of going to fail but if you can kind of relax and just kind of focus and and kind of be like okay well you know let's do the best that we can or let's just have fun with this and let's try something then I think that's that's probably the best if you're just miserable, then who's going to want to work with you? <laughs> no,
12: no, that's really good advice. No. Unless you're
1: Morrissey, because then everyone wants to work with Morrissey. This is scheduler
3: Philip Stagg, head of so Off-Peak the of the scheduling, pre- scheduling, ITV. Program. And he's talking to Donna Tabara, head of Public Service Partnerships, BBC so Academy.
12: So what, what are the best bits of your day and what are the worst bits that you dread?
15: <laughs> that depends on what we had on the night before because mm. uh, the key part of the in. day is the overnight so 9:30 ish every morning we get an email through from um, barb with the overnights and well it's it's you've got all of the overnight figures for all of the channels that you've signed up for and that can determine the mood of the office really if if you've had a big launch the night before then it is really just seeing how how it's done uh, which can be really good especially if you if you don't know what you're expecting well, with Broadchurch or with Vicious and Joblot that we had launching recently. Vicious particularly because we didn't know, we hadn't had a sitcom on ITV for years, mm. so nobody really quite knew what to expect. You'd all be saying, what do you think it's going to get? Mm. So um, when
12: those overnights come in, there's always a panic around the office and there's all sorts of daft <laughs> excuses, isn't there? What's yeah. the worst excuse you've ever made for a show bombing?
15: <laughs> well, that's one of the things that it's part of the job is... Spin really. <laughs> yeah. uh,
12: spin line yeah. You're getting Yeah, I
15: what think we've kind of by the time the overnights are come in, we've already sort of made our excuses of why the programmes are put where they are. And most of the time, you can you can stand behind what what you said, even if it hasn't worked. Because sometimes it is worth a punt. I mean, probably not to the programme maker, but you know you really believe in the decisions that you make. If it's if it is a bold decision, you don't you know. But sometimes they don't work. Things. That George Dixon, who used to schedule BBC One he stripped a drama across a week. I think he was the first person that had done that. So it was on every night, Monday to Friday. and That's a really bold decision when nobody's done it before. So those, he'd have been wetting himself the next morning when the <laughs> overnights came in, on that Tuesday particularly. Uh, but if it hadn't worked, I, th- I think he'd still have been able to stand by that and say, well, it, it was, I think it's the sort of drama that people would want to watch every night and it's, it's worth it.
12: Well, what are the key skills you think you need for a scheduler and what are the personal attributes?
15: Attention to detail is very important. And as I said, tact, <laughs> diplomacy, because you, you do have to explain to people why their program is put where it is. And you, that's not something that we take lightly at all. You know, you know how many people put so much of their heart and soul into making a program that it's, it's not something that we just chuck in somewhere. And so it's important that you're able to explain why you've put a program where you have. So that's important. And personal attributes, I think you need to develop a thick skin <laughs> Because
12: Have you ever taken a load of abuse
15: from a programme maker? Oh yeah, many times. Although I think actually uh, the audience, when I was at CBBS, the audience were the worst for that because <laughs> not the actual audience, their parents. <laughs> because if you've got a, a three-year-old at home that's crying because the in the night garden's not in the bedtime hour and it is normally, then they vent their rage online at the schedule. I, many times I was called for my job there. I should be fired because the story makers wasn't at six o'clock anymore.
12: <laughs> so, so are schedulers becoming more powerful because you're in at the commissioning stage often, you're all becoming controllers, or in the next few years when we just watch what we want to when we want to, are schedulers are you gonna be out of work?
15: That is something that comes up a lot. I don't think so because I think well A, you're always gonna need a kind of a release date for the programme once the program's made and delivered it doesn't just magically appear there's 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 always going to need to be a decision as to how that gets out there but also bigger than that i think that that's not going to change in any any time in the near future that people will want to watch things at the same time as everybody else Broadchurch is a brilliant example of that because people couldn't wait to the next monday to watch it and then everyone was loving that they could all have the same conversation with each other of who did it if you've already watched the box set then you can't really have that it's not the same discussion as waiting for that final part and I think people quite like that
12: uh, this
2: is Melissa Hamid speaking to Tom O'Brien and they're talking about um, the life of a production
0: manager what is a good production manager is you come up with solutions you come up yeah. with alternatives you work with your producers to think about other ways of presenting it back to the broadcast to say okay well we couldn't get this talent for example yeah. or, or this Location, but actually, we found this location and this person, and we could make it work like this.
16: And it is there. We're selling
0: it slightly <laughs> in a different way.
16: Exactly, it's very much about that. Mm. So, so, you're <laughs> a solution finder. Yeah. Um, but, is, is, I mean, you might not be able to say this, but is there a specific example you can give of some time where, you know, the expectations of, of the people making the show were this, the cost was this, you had to somehow find yeah, a middle ground? Yeah, we have li-
0: just finished actually a pilot. Sky and um, it was very ambitious. It was a stunt show, so lots and lots of health and safety. Again, as a production manager, you're the person not ultimately responsible, but you know, you're one of the key personnel that will risk assess how safe it is to do anything on a shoot, Um, and we. We're given a budget that was actually we were given a really nice budget that was then slashed for various reasons but we still believed in the idea and we figured and we got some money for distribution so topped it up a little bit producer director starts difficult the document that had been pitched was a set of really really ambitious yeah. ideas so actually yeah you know, no way in this earth from safety reasons you couldn't do them for budget reasons and, and
16: had you known so when the development team was pitching that in and going we're going to <laughs> yeah. give you the world and it's going to cost you a pound was were you sitting there I'm thinking did you even know anything like, about
0: you know, it, it well no not then be, I was actually working at a different production company
16: right and then so you came in they'd sold the world <laughs> and you're like right and they're like right then I look happen, at the treatment
0: and I'm like pff,
16: can't you do know this. stick
0: someone in a in a pond and blow it up with dynamite, yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm not sure that's gonna right. gonna, gonna work. So <laughs>
16: how do you break the news to the channel that that the basically is you don't, it's not you don't at money. that stage,
0: not at all. You would you'd sit down with your producer director and mm-hmm. he would then have an idea of that I need eight stunts for an hour's show. So um, and I'm like, well and we went round and round and this is you know we've pre production now and we've got to we've got a shooting schedule and right. um and do me a running order. You t- tell me yeah. how you want to break this programme down.
16: Mm-hmm.
0: And, of course, I broke the programme down, there's no way you could fit eight stunts yeah. into... An
15: hour.
0: When we whatever. say an hour, yeah. it's actually a 44... There right. var- varies to different broadcasters, but it's a 44-minute show. So that's a really good starting place to yeah. say, OK, well, where's your favourites? What do you really, really want in this programme?
16: And, then, and then, then I
0: would go and cost it up, and I would go and talk to people about you want a bungee stunt, okay, well, I'll go and find some, you know. Yeah. And that would be in conjunction with a an AP yeah. or a researcher.
16: So do you think that's why production managers get the reputation as always, you know, uh, 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 closing the purse strings, I don't yeah. know if that's an expression, but, uh, but do you think that's fair? Do you think, you know, there's, there is there is a middle ground between expectations and delivery, and you're there to sort of manage, manage. that it's expectation? It's managing
0: expectations a lot of the time, and of, of lots of different levels. And I think... But ultimately, for, for on a personal level, I want the program to be the best thing as well. and I you know the money's not mine. yeah it's the production companies. I'd never really thought about
2: production managing and kind of the budget before because it had never really been an area that I'd thought about. But it was quite interesting listening to how important the budget is and speaking to like broadcasters about um, funding and things like that. I always would assume that if they needed more money, they'd be able to get it from a broadcaster, but obviously not. Um, if they don't want to give you the money, it's going to come out of the production company's budget.
12: That's all we have time for today. Thanks to the producer Matt Hill for putting all of this together.
9: Don't forget that all of the events we've discussed here are available at pafta.org/guru on SoundCloud.com/pafta and on iTunes.
2: And you can get all the latest news on up-and-coming BAFTA events by signing up for our fortnightly newsletter on BAFTA.org. And if you've been inspired by any of the topics described in this podcast, or if you have any feedback, please get in touch at podcast at BAFTA.org. Also, why not rate us on iTunes and help us climb the charts?
6: Goodbye!